your feedback on it. I read this quote just recently, and uh, it kind of stuck out to me. So read it, look it over for a moment, and then uh, we'll discuss it a little bit. I want you to talk about what stands out to you about the quote. Agree with it, disagree with it, why? Right? We live in a time when faith is thin. Just not a lot of it. Because our aching for what is above and beyond us has been anesthetized and our capacity for wonder reduced to clever tricks. We've been given kind of a... We put to sleep. And our capacity for wonder is starting to vanish. Agree with it? Disagree with it? What stands out to you about the quote? Give me some feedback. Those of you not familiar with this, it usually I ask a question and then this is the part where you respond. Yeah, I know it's tricky. It's kind of weird, but what are your thoughts? We don't take time to wonder. Okay, we don't take time to wonder. Good. What else? Okay, you have to have a reason for everything. It's got to be all spelled out. It's got to be logical. Other ideas, other thoughts? We prefer special effects. Prefer special effects. Excellent. Okay, forget to slow down. And that's one of the reasons why we're kind of falling asleep. Lost our ability to blush? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Good. Good. Those of you that couldn't hear that, nothing registers, neither good nor bad. Just kind of stoic faces and you've lost the ability to blush. Any other thoughts, comments? Doesn't fit in my day timer. It's nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, the thing that stood out to me goes along with what all of you are saying is that these are times when it seems faith is thin. And part of why is because we've lost the wonder. Nothing shocks us anymore. We, we, we feel like, as you just described, that we've got everything covered and we don't really need God. We don't need the wonder of faith. We don't need to believe in something beyond ourselves. When you start thinking about wonder, you think about awe, surprise, things that capture our attention or gain our admiration. I remember when I was young, I used to be filled with wonder. Remember that time when you were filled with wonder? I mean, when you imagined you could do anything. Maybe you still feel that way. Maybe there's times where that's the case, but I think for a lot of us, there was this period where we dreamed that anything was possible, and then somehow we've started to shift into this idea that just the expected is what's expected. That maybe there's really nothing more than that. That, that it isn't about wonder, it isn't about dreaming. I, I remember when I was little and I thought anything was possible. I thought my dad, who's just a little bit shorter than me, could beat up anybody. You know, when you're a little kid, you're like, my dad's my hero. 
This guy could crush anybody. I am protected. He's amazing, you know? You have this sense of wonder. I, I used to imagine being, and you probably were there, like hitting that final free throw to win the championship. Or I was never good at baseball, so my dream would have been like bunting in the run or something. But, but you know, hitting it over the fence that seemed forever far away and winning the World Series. Or you, you dreamed, for in my case, it was about soccer. You know, dreaming about the last second goal or somehow defending at the very end to, to take home the cup. Speaking of which, the cup is coming. Yes. 32 days, 32 games, a bit of heaven on earth. Yes. I mean, you're going to hear me talking about it more and more. I can't wait. I'm anticipating it. But I used to dream about soccer all the time. I thought anything was possible. Someday, maybe I will be this great, amazing soccer player. I would have posters on my wall. I'd sit you know, down on the bed or lay down, and I would see these pictures of famous soccer players. They'd probably still be on my wall if my wife let me in. I would, I would just have... I would just remember every one of their names, and I could tell you who they played for and what country they were from, and I could, I could describe them and their skill. I, I used to go to bed at night and pray when I was a little kid that I would someday grow up to be 5'11". 5'11", inches, because all my favorite soccer players were about 5'11". I'm 5'10 and a half, that's why my dreams were never fulfilled, but... but <laughs> I just, I was like, man, if, if only I could be this size, if only I could be this kind of player. In fact, this would be pretty ridiculous, but when I was in middle school, I, uh, we started language in middle school, and so I could have taken, you know, Russian, German, Latin, French, Spanish, you, you name it, there were all these options, and I took German. Why, I asked myself. Well, the reason was this. It made a lot of sense to a middle schooler. Germany at the time had the best soccer team in the world. What better thing than to learn German and be able to talk to the players? It made sense in middle school. Doesn't make sense now when the only phrase I have left is Sprechen Sie Deutsch, you know? Uh, and I can maybe count to five or something. It's, but back then, you know, it was this dream, this wonder, this mystery that something could be possible. I used to, I hope I still do, feel that way about faith. I used to dream about what God would say, what He communicates. I mean, if He said to reach the world, I, I actually thought it's possible. The wonder of it. How would we do it? Dreaming about it. Thinking about how would we reach the world. And maybe you do that same thing. You dream about how, how are we going to reach the city of Spokane. How are we going to reach our neighborhood? I mean, we're planting two churches this fall, and one of the things that like, just keeps coming to my mind is, what if we dreamed of planting ten churches in the next ten years? Is it possible? Or have we just decided to settle in and let what is supposed to be, be? start wondering if maybe what has happened is as we've started to grow older, we've somehow grown out of a sense of wonder. 
And I'm asking myself that question, especially because <clears throat> I came across this quote. It says by A.W. Tozer, Culture is putting out the light in men and women's souls. And I think in many ways he's right. And I think it's also happening in the church. The Church of America, there's, I, I think, a loss of wonder, a loss of expectation, a loss of dreaming. Now, we still dream, churches do, it just doesn't get any further than Sunday morning. We dream of having a certain number of people in the church, or we dream of having a bigger building, or we dream of all these other things associated with church, or, or maybe we go radical and dream about small group and what would happen there, but... I think overall is the church. Sometimes we've forgot that dreaming involves the city. Dreaming involves the world. Dreaming involves our neighborhoods. We're starting today, whether you knew it or not, a series on Nehemiah. And for those of you familiar with the book of Nehemiah, um, we are not probably taking the traditional approaches. So we're not going to do an expose on leadership and all the amazing ways that Nehemiah was a leader. We are probably not going to be talking, well, I can guarantee we're not going to be talking about a capital campaign and how to build the walls and somehow, you know, keep building. Uh, we're we're going to dig into the book of Nehemiah because I think it has a lot to say to us about the city. I think it has a lot to say to us about how to be people who follow Christ in this city. If you have your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And the reason we're going after Nehemiah here is because I think he's a man that didn't lose the wonder. He's a man that still dreamed big dreams. I mean, those of you familiar with Nehemiah realize that, that Jerusalem was in shattered. I mean, it was just destroyed. The buildings, the walls, the... The, the, all the surrounding fortresses are gone. And he wants to rebuild. He has these dreams that come, I think, from a God that dreams big. And so, if you look in your bulletin, and you can check it out later, there's a, the whole backside is some background and information. And we put it there just for the sake of time. Instead of spending a lot of time focused on why Nehemiah, why the book, what, what is it communicating to us. We're just going to jump right into to chapter 1. Really, Nehemiah, in this first chapter, there's three things that I think stick out to me. And it's movement, remembrance, or response, and awe. Movement, response, and awe. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, says this. In the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant here in the provinces who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. First thing that I see in this passage is movement. Really asking the question, what moves you? If you look at 
Nehemiah, he was moved by something. He was moved to tears. He was shocked. He was amazed at what had happened. In fact, what seems pretty nonchalant at the beginning, the story kind of goes like this. Nehemiah's the cupbearer to the king. He's hanging out with the king. Maybe he has a little bit of downtime. He's away from the king. His brother comes to town. Kind of nonchalantly, he asks him, Hey, how's it, how's it going back in Jerusalem? How is our, how's the nation? I'm in exile here, but how, how's everyone back home? And his brother just says, I mean, it's bad. People are in shame. Everything's destroyed. And the response is a response of movement. He's moved. He's moved to tears. He's weeping. He's mourning. I mean, basically, he's having a complete breakdown. I mean, we don't usually think of it in those terms, but look at it here again in verse 4. He hears a story, and as soon as he hears these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. We're, not, we're talking a total collapse here for Nehemiah. We're talking weeping, ashes, mourning, sadness, He's distraught. Now, as I was reading through it, it it struck me that there's a couple things that are probably true of Nehemiah that maybe you don't catch at first glance. The first is this. There's a good chance that Nehemiah had never, ever been to Jerusalem. That it was destroyed a long time ago. His family had been ripped out of Jerusalem and he himself found himself as the cupbearer to the king at some point, and probably, most likely, had never been to Jerusalem. So this place that he's weeping for, these people that he's crying about, he's never met personally. It's a good chance. Second, this is probably not the first time he's ever heard this news. I mean, it seems at first glance that maybe he just heard it for the first time. This happened over 134 years before Nehemiah heard the news. There's a good chance, since his grandfather and grandmother probably were a part of that, that somewhere along the line, he has heard the story of Jerusalem being destroyed, of the temple being in ruins. 134 years plus has passed. So again, it's not the first time he's heard it. So he hears news that he's heard Numerous times before, and all of a sudden, this time, it breaks him. To the point where he has a meltdown. The point where he's just distraught. I mean, it would be, I started thinking about it, it would be the equivalent of this. It would be the equivalent of you hearing, again, about the Chicago Fire. I don't know how many of you heard about that. Chicago Fire, 1871. And you just like hearing about it now, as I tell you. Let me tell you. 3,000 people were killed. About half a, or a million acres of land. And about 20,000 buildings were destroyed. 1871. I declare that news to you again. And all of a sudden, in the corner, someone just breaks down, weeping, crying, mourning because of that news. So, what's happening here? What's going on? 
I kept asking myself that this week, and I think one of the things that stood out to me is this, that something changed in Nehemiah in that moment. Something that he had heard, something that he had taken for granted, something that he's probably ignored in the past, all of a sudden, he caught a passion for the things that stir the heart of God. He caught this feeling, this emotion, this desire that was not there before. Suddenly, it resonated with him in a way that, that was new, that was fresh, that was real. It caused me to ask myself numerous times this week, what, what captures my heart? What captures your heart? What are the things that make your heart break? What are the things that when you hear about them, you just can't get them off your mind? They just keep coming up again and again and again. I started asking myself, do I I just have misplaced passions? Do I somehow not really connect with the very things that connect with God? Has my heart become dull? Has my faith become thin? Have I started to lose the wonder of it all? Because when you start looking around the world, there are quite a few things that are broken. There's things that are in your world specifically that are broken. Have they caught your heart? What are you doing about it? What can we do about it? Which moves us to the second thing that I stood out in this section, this first chapter of Nehemiah, and that is Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah has a response. So part of that response is weeping. Part of that response is mourning. But he has a response. Now, naturally, when something catches our attention, we have one of two responses, usually. We have a passive response and an active response. Those are our options. So, a passive response. A passive response is usually when we feel a burden for something, but we wait and hope someone else will act on the burden we feel. So we just sit back and we go, oh man, that is really bad. I feel bad. I don't like it. And hopefully someone will do something about it. That's one response. Guys get accused of this response quite a bit. So like they will be sitting on the couch, maybe watching a little bit of TV, and the burden of hunger comes. They have it. They are desiring it. And, it, and they usually just are inquisitive at that moment. They go, hey, honey, do we, do we happen to have any snacks? Which translated means, would you be so kind as to bring me something to eat so I don't have to do anything about the burden I feel? That's the passive sit back, wait, do nothing, and hope someone else responds. The active approach, obviously, is the opposite. It's saying, what do I need to do about it? How do I dive in? What, what needs to take place? And Nehemiah obviously takes the active approach. He says, all right, we're doing something about this. But what was interesting to me in this passage is that Nehemiah didn't say, okay, the walls are broken down, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. That wasn't his first response. 
Or the walls are broken down. I need to get on the phone and start calling somebody and making something happen. His first response was none of those things. His first response was to get on his knees. Look at the passage. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His first response was to get on to his knees. Church, I'm convinced that a lot of times we do not see prayer and fasting as kingdom work. And certainly if we do, we don't see it as the first step in kingdom work. We generally think it's a good tack on. It's something that, that, let me get busy, let me start doing something, let me be active, let me pour into it, and then we'll, we'll just pray and ask God to bless it. We'll ask Him to come alongside of what we're already seeking to accomplish. It's so often in my own life, it's so easy for me to want to just dive in, get it done, and then start praying about it. But his first response was the opposite. He started praying first. I mean, it, I've been reading through this passage, praying over this passage, thinking through this passage a lot. And yesterday, I had been uh, grading for the class I teach, writ- written down a bunch of grades on two sheets of paper, left the sheets of paper somewhere, and then I couldn't find them. And I'm going, oh no. I mean, these are grades. I need to turn in grades soon. i got to find these. What do I do? And so, what do I do? I started looking. Looked everywhere. Maybe they got thrown out. I started looking in the trash, digging through the trash. I'm looking in drawers. I'm looking under the bed. I'm looking in places I didn't even think it was possible that it could be there, but maybe it is there. I'm going everywhere trying to find it. And finally, after quite a few minutes of frustration of not being able to find it, what did I do? I went, I wonder if God really cares about this. I should maybe pray, right? So I sat down and prayed. Now, it doesn't always happen this way, but 30 seconds later, papers, right? Yeah, I've been, it's so easy, right? It's so easy. I've been been studying this, reading it, thinking about it, and as soon as that happened, God casually tapped me on the shoulder and said, that's that's my point. That's That's the point I'm making here in Nehemiah. That's the point, Russ, you have to figure out. Because what you keep doing is trying to dive all in first and then coming to me second. And the reality is it should be the opposite. I mean, kingdom work begins on our knees. When was the last time you faced some circumstance, whether insignificant or insurmountable, that the first reaction you had was to get on your knees and pray and fast? And call out to God and say, God, move in this, please. Nehemiah did, and he did it for, as it says in chapter 2, for about four months. Let's look at what he prays. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you 
and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your hand, your great power and by your strong hand. I mean, we could spend a whole another sermon or two just on the contents of this prayer. I mean, it, it, it mirrors the Lord's Prayer where He says, Hallowed be Your name. God, You are amazing and mighty and You are a promise-keeping God. And we confess our trespasses as we confess those trespasses that we have committed and that God, that we forgive people the way that You have forgiven us. And then He goes, He just keeps going through and He gets to this place where He's saying, God, I want to ask something really big of You. And that's the point I want to focus on here for just a moment. That Nehemiah prays something that's big. He doesn't just settle for praying for something that inevitably will take place. He prays for something that in fact, in his mind, was probably impossible. He's praying that when he goes before the king, that the king, whose nation had destroyed his nation earlier, would be able and interested in giving supplies, resources, time, energy, effort to rebuilding the place that his nation had destroyed. Secondly, he's going to the king who in Ezra 4 had just decreed that Israel, that Jerusalem should not be rebuilt. So he's going to the king that said, I decree that you should not rebuild this city. And he's asking him to rebuild the city. He's asking for the impossible. He's asking for something big. When was the last time that you asked for something and you asked for something big? And you believed it. You had faith in it. Because here's what I do. Okay? And this is a shame on my part. But this is what I do. I will come to God and I'll ask for something big and then I'll qualify it and say, well, this is what I want, God, and I know that it is big and so you probably won't give it to me, so I'll ask for something a little more reduced. And then if, God, if that just doesn't work, then I'll trust you that this, this will probably work and I'll believe you for that. And really what I'm saying is I'll believe you for what I could already do for myself, but I won't believe you for what I'm actually hoping and believing you for. I stop praying as if I still have wonder. I stop praying if I still had faith. That's why that quote, the faith is thin. What are we praying for? What are we dreaming for? What are we asking God for? Especially if it's promised. Nehemiah in this particular prayer is quoting a passage out of Deuteronomy 30, where God says, if you do this, I will do this. And he's coming to God and saying, God, promise-keeping God, I'm praying for the impossible. Do it, please. And that's his request. Last point here is awe. One of the things I noticed also in this passage is that Nehemiah has an awe of God. Now, for maybe for us to truly understand this, we need to know a little bit about Nehemiah's job. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. 
For those of us, I'm sure many of us are familiar with what that means, but basically, the cupbearer to the king is standing next to the king most of the time, hanging out with the king. And when the meal comes out, the royal dinner comes out, Nehemiah is the one that eats it first. Tastes the food, drinks the drink, and then stands there and the king just watches him for a few minutes, maybe longer, to see if he's been poisoned. If Nehemiah falls over, he's served his duty. The king says, bring me something else for dinner. If Nehemiah is fine and healthy and looks great, then the king goes, awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in and eat. I mean, there's, there's some great positives to being a cupbearer. You're always in the king's presence. You're hanging out with him. You're kind of the right-hand man. You've laid your life on the line for the king so much that he trusts you. There's some downsides. Obviously, one would be the one time that it doesn't quite work out well for you. Drink the poison, it's over. The other downside is usually every cupbearer was a eunuch, but we won't go there. That's another downside. But Nehemiah, was he, was he was the cupbearer to the king. He was a trusted man. He was a man that was always in the presence of the king. But here's the interesting thing. He was in the presence of not just any king, but a powerful king. I mean, he was in the presence of a pretty interesting fellow. In fact, those of you who have uh, seen the movie 300, if you have, you probably remember a guy named King Xerxes, right? This is a picture of King Xerxes right there. All right. Now, King Xerxes was uh, one of the most powerful men that ever lived. He uh, came very close to conquering the whole known world at the time. King Xerxes had a son. The son was King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes was the man that Nehemiah was going and standing before. This intimidating powerful figure whose dad called himself a god who ruled so much of the known world that drank out of gold. So Nehemiah is sipping the drink out of something worth more than all of us. I mean, just massive gold cups. Everything was immaculate and he's going before this king. And here's what stood out to me. Nehemiah had an awe of God, and here's why. Because he counted God as bigger than the people or objects that were in the way of God's plan. He counted God as bigger than any obstacle that stood in the way. In fact, you notice it here in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man. Not this amazingly powerful, intimidating king who holds my life in his hand. Not this guy that at the wave of a finger, I'm dead. I'm putting my job on the line. I'm putting my life on the line. I'm coming before this intimidating figure to ask him to do something he just recently decreed he would not do for a nation that he had destroyed or his family had destroyed many years before. And I'm coming before him and I'm supposed to ask something that's crazy, that shouldn't happen. 
And he says, God, I fear you, and I don't fear this man. It's just a man. If it was me, again, I, I look at the circumstances, and I look at the people that stand in the way of what it is that God is calling me to, and often I become in awe of those instead of in awe of Him. Does that make sense? We begin to fear the obstacles. We begin to fear the circumstances. We begin to believe that King Artaxerxes is too powerful to be swayed. All of us have King Artaxerxes in our life. All of us have circumstances or obstacles that we think are insurmountable. But you know what? Nehemiah says, this man, he doesn't call the shots. There's only one person who calls the shots. And that's the person that I'm fasting before. That's the person I'm calling out to. That's the person that I'm in awe of, that I fear in a good way, that I'm excited about. And he says, God... I fear you and not this man. And so I'm going to come before him and I'm going to come before whatever circumstance stands in the way because I haven't lost the wonder. I haven't lost the wonder that you can accomplish more than I could ask or imagine. I haven't lost the wonder that regardless of how crazy the circumstances seem, that it's actually still possible. And that's what Nehemiah is getting at here. I mean, Nehemiah is demonstrating to us that it's about those things in us that break our heart. What is it that breaks your heart? And what are you doing about it? It's also the same idea that not only is it what breaks my heart, it's how I respond to it. When God has captured your heart, is your first response to do kingdom work of getting down on your knees. And then the last idea is really this, that if we're going to stand in awe of anything, don't be in awe of how difficult the task seems. Don't be in awe of the obstacle that stands in the way or the person that you just can't get beyond. Be in awe of the Creator. Be in awe of God. And I think if we do those things, what we'll realize that instead of this quote, we live in a time when faith is thin because our aching for what is above and beyond us has been numbed. And our capacity for wonder reduced to clever tricks. Instead of that, the quote would be about living with faith because we still have wonder. We're about movement. We're about response. We're about awe. That's my prayer. That's my desire for us. As we reach the city, as we plant churches, as we continue to be a people that challenges one another, that we just don't lose the wonder. That we still believe it's possible. Let's pray. God, may you remind us that with you all things are possible. May you remind us that you are the one that we are to be in awe of. God, I often find myself more consumed or more worried about the circumstances. Don't think something will come together or feel like the task is too big. And yet, I want to get back to that place where 
When I was little, I thought everything was possible. I want to be in a place where because you are big, I know everything is possible. So God, may you, through this book of Nehemiah, teach us to respond like Nehemiah. May you teach us to have a heart for the city. May you give us a passion for holiness. May you make us a people of purity. May you help us to be focused on community. May all these things that will speak to us from this book, may you continue to address them in our heart. and May you speak. And may we listen. God, in these next few moments, as we sing one last song just to honor you, I pray that you would be excited about what you're stirring in us. May we be excited about who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.